Hawking in A Brief History of Time writes, Even if there is only one possible unified theory, it is just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? The usual approach of science, of constructing a mathematical model, cannot answer the questions of why there should be a universe for the model to describe. Why does the universe go to all the bother of existing? If that question made you stop and go, hmm, then you might find the Citizens of Tech podcast interesting. So pull up an earbud and have a listen. I'm Ethan Banks, and joining me is Eric Sutphin. You can find us on Twitter at Citizens of Tech. This show is a part of the Packet Pushers podcast network. Citizens of Tech and other fine technology podcasts can be found at PacketPushers.net. And our show is in three segments. We first examine tech stories of the present glance over our shoulder at the past, and then peer towards the horizon of future tech we hope someday will become reality. On today's show, recorded July 8th, 2015, we cover news from Amazon, review a cheap IP surveillance camera, dive deep on retina displays and how your eyeballs work, and do not discover extraterrestrial life. Also, robots duel and glaciers cause earthquakes, among other things. So let's dive in with our first story. Eric, you found something interesting from Amazon. Yeah, so sort of uh, ongoing uh, discussion about Amazon Echo and Alexa. Amazon is throwing $100 million and developer tools out there to expand the Echo Alexa ecosystem. So they're releasing an SDK, a software developer's kit. It's called the Alexa Skills Kit, which is a series of application programming interfaces um, that allow developers to integrate Alexa's voice uh, features into their applications. Um, So this may be for mobile, it may be for desktop, what have you. Amazon has said that it's going to open up Alexa's voice services to third-party hardware makers, and they will also allow hardware vendors to use the Alexa voice service for free. So they're really pushing to get this out the door. Um, so, so why do I want to do this? If I'm a, if, does that mean if I have Alexa services tied in with my app that I can basically use those voice services to gateway people to Amazon to buy my the, my product? I, I'm seeing that as the big you know draw to integrating this into your application is you know almost like having an Amazon store on your website or, mm-hmm. or what have you inside the app if you're looking for you know hey I need XYZ you ask the app for that it refers you and they make their eight percent or whatever commission mm-hmm. <laughs> of course I, right. I guess is the is the biggest draw apart from just the fact that I mean echo is now available to the public it was prime only. Uh, they, it was only available to prime members and they were given it, given prime members $50 off the, the entry level, uh, price. So now anyone can buy it. I think it's $199 and they're, they're trying to get this out there where if this really becomes an ecosystem, it's going to be beneficial to have the integration there for, you know, inside your application to use the, the cloud logic, you know, Hey, what's the weather, all that, I guess. Although I don't really see at this point, it's not clear to me what the big draw will be apart from that marketing aspect that we, we just uh, talked about the, the referral bonuses, Mm -hmm. um, because Alexa is sort of a standalone thing at the moment. So I guess it's going to be interesting to see what developers will take the tools and make with it that'll be compelling enough to actually want to use. Yeah, I guess I admire 
Amazon's ability to come up with creative and interesting ways for you to buy stuff very easily. <laughs> <laughs> so it becomes almost reflexive. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just in almost the opposite mindset where I'm starting to be super critical about what I buy and when I buy something because I actually need it and I'm going to use it. Right. As opposed to shiny buy yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. So. Oh, only 49 bucks. I can, I can do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, speaking of things bought on Amazon, um, I did buy a IP surveillance camera a while ago, and I thought I'd yammer about it for a while. Um, <laughs> okay. Here's the thing about IP surveillance cameras. I don't know if you've looked into them or not, but it, it, the idea behind an IP surveillance camera is that it talks to your network over uh, standard TCP IP internet protocol, like uh, like any other networked device you might have. and you get video out of this thing. Um, and if it's a surveillance camera, if the point of it's surveillance, then you would want to pair it with some kind of a DVR, some kind of a solution that will capture images or based on motion detection will mm-hmm. capture some time slice of the video stream so that you can review it later. Um, I live in a rural neighborhood as, as do you. I mean, we, <laughs> it's not like thievery is a big problem around here or anything. I'm, this was more of, I'm a nerd and I want to, I want to do this because I have a Synology array that has a surveillance station software built in. Uh-huh. I don't know if you know about this. Do you, if you yep. work to the Synology Familiar stuff? with Synology. Yeah. So I've got one of their disk arrays in my, uh, in my basement where I store uh, a bunch of stuff and these, uh, surveillance software packages, part of it, you get two cameras for free, or you get to use two camera video streams and feed into the surveillance station for free. Uh, if you want to use more, uh, cameras than that, you got to license up the surveillance station software. Sure. So I'm like, cool. I've got the Synology. I've got surveillance station. Let's get an IP camera. Look at pricing. Look at choices. Look at manufacturers. Wow. There's a slew of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. There's so many. Um, so, so many. And it was overwhelming. And I finally decided, look, this is – I don't want to spend a lot of money. 100 bucks is my limit. I'm going to spend $100, which means I don't do get things like pan, tilt, and zoom, the PTZ feature. That's out, uh, out the door. Uh, I don't get – I probably don't get wireless built in. Probably not. Maybe I do, but probably I don't. Uh, and so on. Um, what I ended up with was a camera by a company called Micro Seven M I C R O S E V E N. It's all spelled out. And this camera was not on the compatible surveillance station list as such, because Synology does provide a list of compatible cameras. Sure. Um, but it does support the ONVIF standard O N V I F standard, which the Synology does support. So I said, well, it should work. Um, so what is ONVIF? ONVIF is um, they on their website they describe themselves as driving IP based physical security through standardization, and and that's a thing because all these video cameras do their own thing, right? They're, right. All their own standards and software and funky ways to do this. So uh, if ONVIF is being a standard, is a is a good thing. Just like in you know the IT industry, if you're following a standard, that's good because now you've got some cross platform compatibility. Um, so a little more about uh. uh Onviv, they are committed to the adoption of IP in the security market. The Onviv spec will ensure interoperability between products regardless of manufacturer, they say on their website. And um, in, in just one last quote here from their site, the spec defines a common protocol for the exchange of information between network video devices, including automatic device discovery, video streaming, and intelligence metadata. So that was a winner. Onviv is supported uh, by the camera and by the, the Synology 
Um, I liked this camera because it has a POE option, power over Ethernet. Yep. Uh, and it came with its own power injector. Oh, nice. So I didn't, you know, I didn't, I had a power injector, but I didn't have to supply uh, my own. I just used their power injector, which was pretty sweet, meaning I don't have to have power way out in the garage to, uh, to feed this thing where mm-hmm. I'm hanging this camera. It is also an IP66 case, which has nothing to do with internet protocol whatsoever. <laughs> when you're talking about uh, IP, what you're talking about is ingress protection. And this is the, effectively the water and dirt proofness of the case of the camera, right? Yep. So um, ingress protection has a whole, if you look on Wikipedia and look at IP underscore code, um, there are a whole bunch of different gradations of ingress protection. So this is IP66. So the first six means that it's dust tight and there's no higher number for that slot. The second six means it can withstand a blast from powerful water jets, meaning it's, it's quite waterproof. So uh, up here in New Hampshire, plenty of rain, plenty of snow. This thing should be fine. And it has been fine. I've had it installed and it has gone through both rain and snow with no issues whatsoever. But that if you've never heard of that as ingress protection marking uh, audience member, go go dig that dig that up. It's just one another one of those fascinating things. And and we briefly talked about that in the water waterproofing your phone. Yeah, because the series that we did a few podcasts anything ago. Anything you any device you have that yeah. um uh is very that that has a need to be to withstand the elements has probably got some kind of a an IP rating like that, which is pretty cool. So the camera also does this Micro Seven camera also does twelve eighty by nine sixty. It comes with a set of uh, companion software, and overall, it's good. It's a wide angle lens. I aim if you actually stand out in front of my house and look at it, it looks like it's aimed at the ground because the wide it's wide angle. Uh-huh. It actually shoots all the way out to the road, so I can see cars coming down the road. I can see. But then because it's pointed at the ground, I can see them pretty much like right under you know the camera as well. Uh, it's pretty good. And I can read license plates with it if someone pulls into the driveway. If they're on the road, I can't because the angle's wrong because yep. they're coming you know, end on uh, or side on instead of end on. But if someone pulls in the driveway, I can actually read a plate. Um, and then the surveillance station software works well with it. I've been using this camera for months and I've had no problems with it. So there's, if you want, you're interested in this particular camera and want to play out with, play around with IP surveillance, I'll put a link in the show notes for the, this actual camera uh, that I bought off of Amazon. Um, one note on the Onviv stuff, their instructions and documentation are abysmal. Just <laughs> bloody awful. It's like, why are they even there? <laughs> oh, so bad. And I got, I couldn't get the Onvif stuff working because there were no directions. Basically, I was just making guesses as to what HTTP data stream I might be able to pull a feed off of the sure. camera. Yeah. Nothing was working. I tried oh, all wow. kinds of stuff. And basically, my guesses were just wrong. So I whined in the Amazon comments and said, I could not get this working with my Synology, with the Onvif standard, just nothing. And uh, and one of their support people came right on and said, oh, this is how you do it and laid out all the instructions. And so I changed my com- upgraded my comments and stuff, because as soon as he gave me those directions, I it worked. Everything was great. And I've had no problems with it since. <laughs> so <laughs> pro tip, get that guy to rewrite your documentation. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> uh, now, you found something about uh, giant robot duels. I got what? all excited when I saw you put this story in the show notes. I'm like, ooh, Max, yay. You, you had me at giant robot duels. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, so there's an American company, uh, U.S.-based Megabots Incorporated. They, they, their thing is they have these 15-foot-tall uh, internally piloted humanoid robots. And... If you go to the website, we'll have it in the show notes. Basically, 
these things, it's like if you ever played Mech Warrior or whatever, they're like scaled down Mech Warrior mechs. They, that's a thing. It's not just like a Gundam drawing. It's like a th- actual. Oh no! You get in this thing, and it has oh. paintball guns that you shoot at other people in these mechs. Okay, oh, and it's that awesome. Is cool. That is, yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So there's a competitor out of Japan called. I'm going to mangle the Japanese because I don't speak it, but uh, Sudobashi Heavy Industry, and they. I mean. Japan is the birthplace of giant robot mechs. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's where it all started, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So they have a, a mech that you know is, is sort of in the same league, size wise, and and all this. And so the the team at Megabots challenged their competitor, Sudabashi Heavy Industries, to a giant robot fight. We have a giant robot. You have a giant robot. It is obvious what needs to happen. Those are the actual words in the video. Yeah. I love it. It's awesome. Uh, So the, I I think the guy's the CEO and founder and lead designer or whatever. uh, uh, Kagoro Kurata said in, in their response video that they posted to YouTube. Yeah, I'll fight. Absolutely. And he's, yeah, he's the guy who built uh, Sudabashi's four-ton mech robot. And he said, we can't let another country win this. Giant robots are Japanese culture. <laughs> so he has a caveat to that, though. In, in his response, he also upped the stakes because um, the Megabots, like I said, uses paintballs. And so you shoot the the paintballs at, at the other mechs. But uh, Karata is saying, uh, he said, quote, my reaction? Come on, guys, make it cooler. Just building something huge and sticking guns on it. It's super American. It's so <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's great. Basically threw down the gauntlet and said, this is we want it to be a melee fight. And so he's, he said, giant robots. We don't we want we don't want to see them shooting at each other. We want to see them ripping each other apart. <laughs> well, in, in in the documentary Pacific Rim, uh, <laughs> there was a sword that they discovered I, I when they were in space. Not to laugh with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> so that would be perfect. It's not yeah, just guns. I mean, there's also a sword. <laughs> okay, total total rabbit trail here, and I'll keep it brief. But did anyone else notice that? The mechs were having all these troubles, and then all of a sudden they just sort of remembered the sword, and they just dominated after exactly. that. Exactly. It's like, what? <laughs> come on! It was the stupidest part of the movie, <laughs> and that's and, saying and, something. And the best part, in a way, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what. Yeah, Pacific Rim. You is, had to is, throw away your critique, it, and your you had to suspend. It is the best worst movie yeah. ever. Yeah. I'll definitely well, we, watch yeah, we it again. We went and saw that, yeah, together, and sort of shook our heads and laughed and smiled at the same time. It's, yeah. That was awful. This is Great. terrible and I love I, it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be mm. interesting to see what happens with this duel if it if it is a, a melee affair and what the results will be. So speaking of terrible, awful things that I like, um, <laughs> I got this little story off of uh, uh, Ars Technica. Uh, there's a Bluetooth Star Trek communicator now. And so someone went and uh, this company called the Wand Company made a Star Trek communicator. It looks just like what Kirk or Spock would have had in the original series. The flip phone kind of thing. Yeah. The the black chunk of uh, communication device in their hand with the mesh gold cover that they would flip open. Yep. And it would make that noise. And they would say, you know, 
Kirk to Enterprise, and off he'd go, and they'd whatever. Uhura here, Captain. Um, so okay, I you do that really well. Yeah, well, I've been watching original series on Amazon Prime. It's all fresh in my head. I'm just barely making it through season three of original series, which is terrible. Yeah. The writing really tanked. Um, it definitely peaked during season two, season three, which is the last one before it went into syndication a couple of years later or a few years later. It's so bad. dude. Yeah. It's so bad. Anyway, so the communicator, it looks just like the communicator from the original series, which if you're a Star Trek nerd, how awesome is that? Sure. Really cool. And it works over Bluetooth. It's a, it's basically a headset. Um, and uh, supposedly it even plays the right sounds. But then uh, the guy writing the article points out, he goes, but as a piece of technology, gosh, isn't Star Trek terrible? Leap forward a decade and smartphones are abundant. The communicator with its buttons and its grills and its limited functionality doesn't even have a camera. <laughs> Looks positively archaic. And he's right. Think about it. Our smartphones, just my old iPhone. I've got a 4S yeah. Uh, yeah. Apple iPhone right now, which is three years old, I think, as far as technology. And it's amazing compared to what the Star Trek communicator would do. Uh, it So whatever. But that said, I still think Star Trek communicator. Come on. That's yeah. cool. Well, I mean, in many ways, Star Trek sort of forecast a lot of future technology. Oh, sure. The, the foresight was there, you know, to a limited degree. I mean, you, you can talk about you know uh phones and shoes and stuff from i think that is that get, get smart. smart yeah yeah and things like that and it's interesting to look back and see these ideas that people had and and then the part the portions that they just never could have conceived of well speaking of things that we can't conceive of yet we're still trying to conceive of extraterrestrial life but uh maybe some people are trying too hard i think yeah just <sighs> grasping at straws really is what it seems like so the guardian uh, reported this. I mean, generally they have pretty good science coverage, uh, but they they reported that there's a, a comet called 67P or Phile, I believe, is is the actual name for it. 67P is such a personal name. 67P. <laughs> well, you know, my friends call me 67P. Um, so the report indicates that it may harbor lots and lots of life. And the purported evidence for life is the presence of complex hydrocarbons on the comet in the comet's uh, crust. And the problem here is that the Guardian could have at least done some background reading on the person behind the claim, uh, Chandra Wickramensig. And this guy has a long history of making claims about extraterrestrial life. I mean, painfully long. <laughs> okay. So the Guardian reported the story, but Chandra is not a reliable source, whatever scientific credentials he may or may not have. He's at least not a reliable source for this. Yeah. So an actual uh, biochemist sort of reviewed the claims here and said, you know, as it came from the cold, 67P was in almost perfect condition for carbon growth. It has spent a lot of time sweeping through the solar system, gathering organic molecules as it went, which it seems to have done. Its surface is so cold that most molecules will hit and stick. In other words, the comet has simply been gathering all the ingredients that it needed to start performing this chemistry. So as it approaches the sun, the surface temperature is starting to increase as it does so. The surface mobility and local uh, partial pressure of hydrocarbons in the almost non-existent atmosphere will increase. The intensity of ion bombardment and ionizing radiation from the sun will also grow as the comet hits its perihelion, the closest point to the sun. That means that all the stuff that I observe in the lab will now be happening at top speed on the comet's surface. With such a reactive mix, almost any carbon layer with any structure you care to think of can and will form. 
So, so this carbon layer that's supposed to be an indicator of life is just one of those things that happen under the right circumstances and doesn't necessarily indicate life whatsoever. It's, yeah, it's dust bunnies sticking to the thing moving through space, essentially. <laughs> well, thanks, Chandra. It's, it's Appreciate not that. billions and billions of tiny life forms. <laughs> oh. uh, it is what it is. But yeah, kind of surprising that the Guardian would take it at face value and just report it, but. Yeah, but what's more sensational? I mean, this is all about writing, writing the clickbait headline. Got to get them clicks. Yeah. Extra, finally, we found it. It's on the <laughs> comet. I knew it. This is the comet that's coming to Earth to pick us up. I got it. Ah! That's a great idea. My next blog entry will be about extraterrestrial life. <laughs> got to get them clicks. Uh. <laughs> so bringing from extraterrestrial to terrestrial. I found a story about how a glacier um, getting broken off from its uh, or, or, or a glacier calving, basically the calving is the process of the a glacier that's at the at its terminus at the ocean. Mm-hmm. A big chunk of it will break off and form massive icebergs. Um, this has been happening in uh, in Antarctica, particularly for a good long time. And there's it's been observed that when a glacier calves. There is a seismic reading, basically an earthquake mm. uh, happens. But the thought is, how is this happening? Because <laughs> the iceberg doesn't hit the ocean floor usually. That's so. What is it that's really going on? Okay, so what they did was they came up with uh, a, a way to do some measurements and figure this thing out. So they started off with an army of GPS sensors, and who was they? They is a team of researchers led by Swansea University's Tavi Murray. Um, and they actually did this not in Antarctica, but up in uh, Greenland. They went to Greenland's Helheim Glacier. They placed an array of GPS stations atop the crevassed, treacherous ice cliff and measured the motion of the glacier during calving events. Mm. So, okay. So the, now we're going to measure. Now, if you can imagine this, you've got this huge chunk of ice. It's going to fall off the end of the glacier into the ocean. And now they got GPS sensors all over this thing so they can measure what's really going on. And they detected uh, movement during calving. And here's a quote. And one representative example, a 790 meter thick iceberg with a top area of almost half a square kilometer. Pretty darn big chunk of ice. Massive, massive, not massive on on the scale of like how big they can get. But but that's a darn big piece of ice. It's a big ice cube. It cracked off and it rotated up onto its side. During that process, which took several minutes to play out, the GPS sensors back from the edge moved about 10 centimeters back away from the water before shifting back to their original position. So if you're imagining this, the, the, this is the glacier still on land, mm-hmm. still connected. The, the sensors there, as the glacier ripped, uh, the iceberg ripped away from the glacier, they moved back about 10 centimeters and then you know back out again. Um, these sensors also sunk a downward, uh, or also sensed a, a downward similar motion, only to bob back up. So as this thing ripped away, the weight of it caused the main glacier to go back in towards land and go down a little bit and then bob back up. Okay, so the, if you, you can imagine this kind of this bobbing spring-like motion of the glacier uh, as this happened. Um, and so it basically, it, it's kind of like a spring compression. Uh, here's go back to the quote. As the bottom of the iceberg, soon to become its side, sprung up away from the glacier and towards the surface of the water, the top of the iceberg pushed back against the front of the glacier. That causes this motion we were describing, the glacier to compress like a spring, creating a seismic wave that propagated down into the bedrock and away. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Pretty cool. So it's actually the um that 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 compression creating a wave of energy that goes all the way down into the bedrock. So the ice is actually flexing. Yeah. Uh, another 
uh, element here that is that registers is there's there's a space a low pressure area created in the space between the glacier and the iceberg that registers on the bedrock below uh two at the same time the opening of the space between the iceberg and the glacier creates a zero pressure or i'm sorry a lower pressure zone as the water rushes in and believe it or not, that low pressure zone not only pulls down the glacier, but it means slightly less of a load on the bedrock below, causing that bedrock to flex upward just a tiny bit. That slight flexing is also enough to release a seismic wave in sync with the compression of the glacier, but a vertical motion this time. So you end up with a with a couple of different things happening there. It's a bidirectional force. Yeah, one's pushing up and one's pushing out and back. Which is such a weird little bit of trivia. I just read that story and I'm like, that is cool. That, that is, I mean, we, and GPS freaked out. Here's another thing, kind of a side note that I don't want to depart too long on, but how long ago was it that GPS wasn't, mm, you know, able to really distinguish that level of detail? Centimeters, yeah. And we're talking I mean, 10 centimeter measurements uh, with these these GPS uh, stations. So that was, that kind of impressed me too, because I wasn't aware that we were able to resolve it quite that low. Yeah. I mean, consumer, consumer grade things are accurate to maybe one to five meters, I think is, is pretty much the general accuracy. So to get down to centimeter grade, it's probably some high precision GPS device. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Science is neat. Science is neat. So speaking, speaking of science, science. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I got a new toy. You did, and it's purdy. It's it's very purdy. I um, uh, if you've been listening to me on on this podcast or, or many of the other podcasts that I'm on, you might know I'm a bit of an Apple fan, which is entirely Greg Farrow's fault. He he made me do it. Um, but but the uh, my latest Apple acquisition is a Retina 5K iMac. So if you don't know anything about Apple products, the um the iMac is their all in one system, um, screen, CPU, storage ports, blah, blah, all in one chassis. And it is a beautiful thing. It's a marvel of engineering. This is the retina flavor of that with a 27 inch screen. And so by retina, what Apple means is, um, it means that you can look at the screen and not discern the pixels. That's the big idea. So it is like, when you look at the screen, it is like looking at a piece of paper, um, that has been you know, printed is the, is the big idea. The whole point being it, one, it just looks glorious. Mm. It looks beautiful and it is easier on your eyes. Supposedly yep. it is easier on your eyes because you don't notice the pixelation. I forget what all the science is behind why it's supposed to be easier on your eyes, but I know that that's a common, um, you know, story. So I went from, I actually had a nice monitor before. I had a a, a thirty inch twenty five sixty by sixteen hundred Dell monitor that I bought used off of their or refurbished, I think, off of their outlet store a few years ago. Um, that's a pretty nice screen. Sure, but you could definitely see pixelation. I mean, uh, there's no, no question about it. The Retina screen is fifty one twenty by twenty eight eighty. I think that I don't have the specs right from right. me. Yep. But that, I think that's right. It's something close to that. And it is uh, definitely Retina. I mean, I'm, I have a Retina iMac laptop in front of me while I'm recording this. I've had a, uh, an iPhone four, um, and they do look lovely. But it all begs the question: what? What do we mean by you know retina anyway? What are we getting at? And I thought I'd I'd, I'd dive into you know the eyeball a little bit and kind of you know see what it is that we're actually talking about. What are, what are we getting at? I was just going to say I think it's important to note that the the term retina display then is nebulous is a word that's thrown around a lot, but it's not really nebulous. It's contextual. 
what context are we talking about? Screen size, viewing distance, retina display depends on the type of device, the size of the screen and how far away you're going to be, unless I'm mistaken. You, no, that, that's what I was reading, too. It's all of those things. Um, and so, uh, Eric, you found a quote by Steve Jobs here during the iPhone 4 launch, which was back a few years. But there's a magic number right around 300 PPI pixels per inch that when you hold something around 10 or 12 inches away from your eyes is the limit of the human retina to differentiate the pixels. Um, and uh, is, science would quote 286 pixels per inch capability of 2020 vision from that distance. So for most people, that's that's right. 300 pixels per inch is what that job said would be would be exactly right. The individual The individual pixels are indiscernible. So what's the retina anyway in your eyeball? And I did some digging around, some Googling. I found, I did, I Googled like how the eye works and how, you know, and there's, there is, your eye is a complex device, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot to it. You got the, 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 the corneal lens, you've got liquid in the middle of your eyeball. You've got the iris, which uh, uh, expands and contracts the amount of light or uh, to allow more or less light to come into your eye. Um, there's a, uh, refraction process where the light ends up being exposed on the back of your eyeball to upside down, yeah, to the retina. Uh, yes, uh, in fact, upside down um, to the retina, and then the retina is the thing we want to focus on here. And I found a really good article on a University of Washington site, uh, faculty.washington.edu. Um, about the retina it's actually under a heading neuroscience for kids which i thought would be about right not because we're all children here but because it doesn't go too deep in while still hitting a lot of the good stuff so let me read a few bits from this webpage that uh that we'll link to in the show notes if you want to want to get more out of this the retina is the back part of the eye that contains the cells that respond to light and these specialized cells are called photoreceptors and then there's two kinds of photoreceptors in the retina rods and cones High school biology coming back to you. It's kind of coming back to me. Um, Remembering that stuff. The rods are most sensitive to light and dark changes, shape and movement, and contain only one type of light-sensitive pigment. Rods are not good for color vision. In a dim room, however, we use mainly our rods, but we are colorblind. Rods are more numerous than cones in the periphery of the retina. Next time you want to see a dim star at night... Try to look at it with your peripheral vision and use your rod vision to see the dim star. There are about 120 million rods in the human retina. Okay, so that's one type of photoreceptor, the rods. Now let's move on to cones, the other kind. The cones are not as sensitive to light as the rods. However, cones are most sensitive to one of three different colors, green, red, or blue. Those, those primary colors make sense. Um, signals from cones are sent to the brain, which then translates these messages into the perception of color. Cones, however, work only in bright light. That's why you cannot see color very well in dark places. So the cones are used for color vision and are better suited for detecting fine details. There are about 6 million cones in the human retina. Some people cannot tell some colors from others. These people are colorblind. Someone who is colorblind does not have a particular type of cone of the retina or one type of cone may be weak. So that is, in, in a nutshell, what your retina is and, uh, and what it does. 
So here's a little did you know section at the bottom of the page that kind of tries to bring a lot of this stuff together. It says, did you know? Why can't you see very well when you first go into a darkened room, like say a movie theater? When you first enter the movie theater, the cones in your retina are working and the rods are not yet activated. Cones need a lot of light to work properly. Rods need less light to work, but they need about seven to 10 minutes to take over for the cones. After seven to 10 minutes in the dark, the rods do work, but you cannot see colors very well because the rods do not provide any color information, right? We, we talked about that a little bit earlier. The cones, which do provide color information, need more light, but do not work well in the dark. After the movie is over and you leave the theater, everything looks very bright and is hard to see for a minute or two. This is because the rods become saturated and stop working in these bright conditions. It takes a few minutes for the cones to begin to function again and for normal vision to be restored. So there we go. Retina, photoreceptors, and the two types of photoreceptors, rods and cones, taking us back then to the retina display. So if you look on Wikipedia, there is an entry retina underscore display that talks about a lot of the different retinas. Did you did you see this chart, Eric? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the one that stuck out to me was the iPhone 6 Plus 5.5 inch screen with 401 pixels per inch. Uh, 1920 by 1080. Because I, I remember looking at that going, 1920 by 1080 didn't sound like a lot, I guess. And then I'm looking at the pixels prints going, oh, no, wait, yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, when you pack it into such a small screen. But it's interesting that it, um, if you look at, the, they also have the screen that I was just talking about, the Retina 5K display, uh, 218 pixels per inch, um, which is like half as much, but they're still both considered uh, Retina. Well, what's the what's the difference here? Well, the typical it goes back to the typical viewing distance. How far away is your face from the screen? Mm-hmm. If it's your iPhone, it's probably closer. If it's your you know iMac, it's going to be further away. And in this case, they're saying twenty inches versus probably ten inches from the uh, for the iPhone six plus. Huh. I don't know about that. You really hold a phone ten inches from your face. <laughs> That would be weird. I think I hold, so I have a G3, LG G3, and it's 2560 by 1440. Yep. Which, and, is, which, which is even better than the I, the 6 Plus by quite a bit. Right. And I hold it probably, geez, how far is this? I mean, t- just sitting here looking at you, it's um, like almost two feet? At least two feet. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's got to be you know beyond able to, I mean, yeah, if you hold it, now you're holding it 10 inches from your face. And it Can would be uncomfortable to, yeah, like it would be well, you, eye strain. Maybe, maybe because I'm old, I don't. You got glasses, and I, I, my eyesight's not perfect. I wear glasses when I drive and stuff for distance. My eyes aren't perfect either. But yeah, ten to twelve inches for a phone seems. I mean, I guess, I guess with an iPhone four, it was ten to twelve inches would make sense because the screen was so much smaller. But with screen, I mean, this five point seven inch screen, I think, yeah. like, there's no need to hold it that close in for me. Interesting also from the Wikipedia article on this, um, there was some criticism of Apple using the word retina to mm-hmm. to describe this. Um, Raymond Soniera, president of DisplayMate Technologies, has challenged Apple's claim. He says that the physiology, I'm reading right from the Wikipedia article here, he says that the physiology of the human retina is such that there must be at least 477 pixels per inch in a pixelated display for the pixels to become imperceptible to the human eye at a distance of 12 inches. He's a pedant, in other words. Yes, yes. <laughs> There's several other claims about this. And, uh, you know, 
some other um if you, you scroll down to that criticism section apple fan website cult of mac stated that the resolution of the human eye uh, can discern at 12 inches is 900 pixels per inch concluding that apple's retina displays are only about 33 percent of the way there um so part of, okay uh, all these pedant claims aside to me i know when looking at what is considered to be a retina screen that to, to my brain, the claim is true. When I look at this laptop right in front of me right now that I'm reading from to record this show and stare at the screen, I can't see pixels. Mm-hmm. I can't. Everything, the fonts are dead smooth. And I love fonts. I'm very particular. But my, my wife would tell you that I've always been very particular about monitors and I've been fussy about monitors since the beginning of my computing yeah. um, days, for sure. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a label, but when you get to certain resolutions, you just know it when you see it or don't see it. <laughs> I look at my laptop with the 1366 by 768 display. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the retina displays in this list was the Apple Watch, which, interestingly enough, Mr. Sutfin, you have put on the Death Watch list. I did. I, I added it to Death, Wa- Death Watch uh, just, just this morning. Because I read an article that confirmed essentially what I suspected. And I don't know if this is indicative of all wearables, and that's a topic for another day. But the Apple Watch sales are down 90% as compared with launch. So generally what happens, I mean, with any tech item gadget that widget that gets released is, especially if it's an Apple device, there's just rabid uh, consumer demand for it at release people waiting in line for days and all that saw a lot less of that this time with the apple watch as opposed to the iphones and and all that but um it's such a niche product that everyone sort of marked it you know marked it up to that so what's happened is there was meh okay demand for it when it first launched and it trickled off and then it kind of spiked back up a little bit Back in May, I think it was. And then after that little spike, it has just dropped on a week by week basis. And so, yeah, they're they're now selling 90 percent fewer uh, Apple watches than they did at launch time. This information is from Market Watch. Two interesting points are that they they have this ten thousand dollar Apple watch, if you're familiar with it. Right. The gold one. Right. Yeah. So the speculation is that fewer than two thousand of them have been sold in the U.S., for what it's worth, that's still $20 million worth of silly gold watches. Anyway, That's <laughs> true. But the, the biggest thing here is that two-thirds of the watches that have sold so far have been the lower-profit sport version with the starting price of $349, uh, rather than the costlier and more advanced models that start at $549. So, oh, wow. Okay, so I just had a sudden realization hit me about why sales are down. These are really expensive. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 349 uh, and the costlier advanced models are, are start at 549. I had no idea that they were th- maybe I did know that. I don't know. Well, the thing is if if the if the sport version I think was 199, that would be the magic number. And then maybe 299 or 399 for the for the high end one. But the problem here is you can get a really good uh kinetic watch that you know, yes, it's only a watch, but you can get a really good one or a really decent one, I should say, for around two hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, and it, it it will last forever 
and there's no software to update and there's no obsolete built-in obsolescence and well the, isn't there a dependency on the apple watch on your iphone in some way aren't those they're related somehow they're highly integrated i don't i don't know that you exclusively need an iphone to use it it's well, the I, yeah, ecosystem. it's like it's how you get your messages and how I mean, there's a, there's an expectation that the phone is there, right? Doing some of the heavy lifting uh, for the watch was kind of how I understood it. Yeah, so if you're not an iPhone user, you're not going to get the most benefit from it, mm-hmm. and you know, I mean, yeah, there there are millions and millions and millions of iPhones out there, so there is a large market, but that large market doesn't have you know this the, the small percent of that large market that would actually want a wearable device that ties exclusively with that phone just doesn't seem to be grabbing the concept or those that did understand the concept and see a, a use case for it have already gotten their watches it seems so that's a really long little dive on a death watch item but it's something that i suspected was going to happen and i was always i always sort of hesitated because uh, you can't put an apple device on death watch but yeah i'm doing it <laughs> you can do whatever you want <laughs> it's my uh, death watch list i'll do what i want so- <laughs> So my take on the on the watch was just that I I just don't know why I'd want it and I've kind of gotten away from wearing things on my wrist anyway. I have a GPS watch that I wear when I go hiking or biking something like that because it gathers data that's interesting to me. The the watch I don't want another screen to look at and I'm not really looking to have something like that on my wrist. And as far as telling time, there's a million ways I can tell time. I'm almost always in front of a screen and that inevitably it has a clock yep. that's usually synced to the internet or synced to GPS or something. So I know it's as accurate as it could possibly be. Yep. And, uh, and as a piece of jewelry, it's just not, eh, you know, it's not that compelling to me. I mean, I've seen several people with them on, they look handsome. They sure. look nice. Um, the, no doubt about it. And you get all the bracelet choices and all that stuff. It's just, but especially at that pricing level, I've never looked into it that seriously, obviously, because the, the <laughs> three forty nine and five forty nine price were like, oh wow, uh, kind of shocking. Yeah. But uh, eh, eh. Mm. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> random sound effects for the win. Okay, so today I learned that NASA. Eh, technically, I didn't actually learn this today. Today I was reminded, but anyhow. Today, I learned that NASA has its own radio station called Third Rock Radio, which plays rock, indie, and alternative music with NASA news items and mission updates embedded throughout. Oh, nerd radio. And awesome. We'll, we'll put, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's, you can stream it through tunein.com. Third Rock Radio. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool to, to hear the uh, mission updates on things like the International Space Station and, and all this. Well, I mentioned Soma FM on a show, and they've got kind of a nerdy station, too, called the DEFCON Radio, where in between the whatever music they're playing, they have um, sound bites from, from security conferences and, uh, and quotables from security people. Uh, yeah. That's uh, it's kind of neat. It's, uh, I think their subtitle is you know, Music to Hack By or something like that. So That's great. Kind of cool stuff. Well, let's move into the past, look back over our shoulder at, uh, at things, things that, uh, that once were. And uh, and this is kind of a kind of a hybrid story, past and present. Yeah. Um, uh, let's talk about vinyl for a minute. Vinyl, I mean vinyl records. So um, there's another Ars Technica story. Vinyl records are still riding that big comeback wave, sales up 38 percent in a year. And so before we get into the stats of that, I thought we'd just you know remind you if you've never you youngins that have never ever worked <laughs> with vinyl or know how a record player works, how does it wor- work? And uh, and it is. 
if you think about a CD or digital media, that's all ones and zeros. Mm-hmm. If it's a CD, it's a laser that's scanning uh, rings that have pits in them, and it and it reads one as a zero and one as a one. It comes out digital, and then it converts that digitally into sound. And the data is either there or it or it isn't. And MP3s and so on are basically the same thing. It's a digital encoding, zeros and ones, and that digital um, uh, signal is converted into uh, sound. Well, vinyl back in the day was not ones and zeros. It was um, analog, and it was done with mechanical energy. So a piece of vinyl, what it really is, is a... um, it's a really long spiral is what it is. It starts at the outside and a needle sits in a groove and then the record spins and the needle just follows along the groove, spiraling slowly inward all the way to the center of the record. And as that stylus is in the groove, it bumps across that groove. That groove has got uh, you know uh, ups and downs and peaks and valleys at a, at a very tiny level, microscopic level. And that stylus, that needle, which is actually a very fine, uh, like a, like a diamond tip, um, Mm. typically. And they come in various shapes. If you've ever gotten into this, there's various shapes have various uh, cost attributes and various (laughs) sound sound advantages. If you're an audiophile, um, that, uh, stylus bumps up and down in that groove and, uh, that, uh, that diamond or sapphire, maybe, uh, crystal is mounted on the end of a very lightweight, uh, metal bar. And that, crystal uh, vibrates into the groove, its microscopic bounces are transmitted down the bar, and the stylus sits on the end of an electromagnetic device called a cartridge, and that cartridge contains probably contains a piezoelectric crystal. Um, and then that gets converted into electrical energy, you know, the metal bar pressing against the crystal. And I got, a, I got, a, I got an article here, explain that stuff.com slash record players that I'm, I'm quoting from. The crystal wobbles slightly, generates an electrical signal, and then that signal is fed out to the amp, making the sounds that you hear. Not all record player cartridges use piezoelectricity to convert sound. Uh, Some of them have tiny electric coils and a magnet inside of them, and so when the stylus moves, it pushes the magnet up and down past the coil and generates electrical signals that way. Sure. So this is... I got into restoring records once upon a time. It was fun just to buy old vinyl uh, it recorded. was a cheap hobby. <laughs> it was a cheap hobby. You can buy records for next to nothing, you know, five bucks. You can buy a piece of vinyl, a record player, and then you need some kind of a a record player preamp that will boost the signal to an appropriate level. You just can't go directly from the back of the record player and into a regular line in because the signal is not powerful enough. You right. need a preamp, a, a phono preamp is what it's called to boost the signal enough. Then you take that and you pump it into your car, your like the sound card on your computer, some kind of an input. You know, back in the day I was using a, a special sound card, uh, not spe- not by special. I mean, it was aftermarket. It was like a, some fancy creative or turtle yeah. beach or whatever sound it was that I bought something. something yeah. Not an, not an onboard motherboard. It, sound card, right. right. It was something that was supposed to be somewhat higher quality. Yep. And then you use recording software just to take that sound and commit it to ones and zeros. And then you use a wave editor and fancy post-processing software to take out the pops and clicks and clean it up and make it sound as good as you can. It's a fun hobby. Fun hobby. Anyway. Well, you know, if you're a hipster guy or girl, then you can uh, you can still buy vinyl today. And it's like on the comeback, right? It's on the rise. Nielsen Music released its 2015 U.S. mid-year report, finding that overall music consumption had increased by 14 percent in the first half of the year. 
What's driving the boom? Well, certainly a growth in uh, streaming. This is music overall, right? Certainly a growth in streaming. On-demand streaming increased year over year by 92.4% with more than 135 billion songs streamed and overall sales of digital streaming increasing by 23%. And the article goes on. But what may be more fascinating is the continued resurgence of the old licorice pizza that is vinyl LPs. Nielsen reports that vinyl LP sales are up 38% year to date. Vinyl sales now comprise nearly, get this, 9% of physical album sales. <laughs> I mean, I guess 9% of almost nothing is <laughs> easier to achieve. But that is actually pretty impressive. I mean, as CD sales have dropped uh, and LP sales have, have started to climb again, that's an interesting dynamic. I, it's also interesting that Nielsen found that digital album sales were flat compared to last year, yeah. and digital track sales were down 10.4%, and unsurprisingly, CD sales were down 10%. So Nielsen reports in 2010 that 2.5 million vinyl records were stored in 2009. Uh uh, and at that time, Ars Technica noted that that was more than any other year since the media tracking business started keeping score in 1991. Wow. So now we're five years beyond that, right? Fast forward five years, and that number has more than doubled as Nielsen counted 5.6 million vinyl records sold. Wow. <laughs> now, I, I will say this. If you're a music person, you really like music, it, it, and you're looking for a new hobby to get into, there is something kind of special about a piece of vinyl putting it down on the platter of a turntable and setting the stylus into the groove and hearing that little oh it's it's a tactile engaging personal almost an intimate experience it really it's some it, for something that's not a live performance it somehow makes you more connected to the the music well it, it and here's the thing about vinyl is it captures all the little nuance not all, but a lot of the nuance and even imperfections to the sounds that digital doesn't always capture as well. There is a warmth to vinyl that is I mean, maybe you got to have golden ears or something to hear it, but it's it's a pretty common um, story that people will tell that listening to music on vinyl is just a more rich, uh, full sound experience, more engrossing that there's sometimes a harshness or a coldness that comes from purely digital recordings. And that's, I guess that's part of the hipster vibe to the whole thing is you, you really want to, you know, get a special music experience. You got to go with vinyl and 5.6 million record albums sold over uh, the last year. That's a testament to the, the, something to it. Testament to the je ne sais quoi. I, I I'll say also if you if if you're looking for something to spend money on, well, there's no lack of money to spend playing records, Kidding playing me. vinyl. Yeah. I mean, you can get into some really exotic record players. Uh, the the turntable technology is extraordinary. How flat is the platter? Yep. You know how is it keeping the speed correct at 33 or 45 is RPMs? Is it belt driven or is it a direct drive or oh. is it? Yeah. How is the arm that holds the stylus on the end weighted or counterweighted? What it, because the angle of the stylus changes in the groove as it moves from outer ring to inner ring? Are you adjusting for that so that the sound is not altered? Oh yeah, you yeah. can go bonkers with that kind of and stuff, and you can go bonkers with the collector's edition LPs as well oh. uh, with the special well, artwork and because of this. Yeah. The special artwork is that was a thing, you know, vinyl albums back in the day. That the was artwork the experience. Was part that was part of the experience. Yeah. If you watch any music documentaries, um, some of the albums from back in the day, they will talk about the 
art, album art as being a significant part of the creation process. They weren't just creating music and throwing it on a black piece of vinyl to get it out to people and mass market it. Yeah, that was part of it, but it was a, 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 a bigger experience than just the music. The And the album art was a big part of it. The that. music was part of the whole experience, yeah. Mm. Well, we should move on, I suppose, to the future, eh? To the future. So... Interesting article here from, again, from Ars Technica. The headline here is, could in-flight refueling be an alternative to the hub and spoke model? So there's a, a precedent here, uh, the the recreate study, and it's a, is it a backronym? Is that the term? I don't know. But it's a research on cruiser-enabled air transport environment, recreate. It was funded by the, the EU. <laughs> yeah, it worked really hard like to you're, do that. you're trying okay. a little too yeah. hard here. Um <laughs> Anyway, it was funded by the EU, and it was conducted by researchers spread across Germany, the Netherlands, the UK, Sweden, and Switzerland. It was meant to come up with novel ideas for air transport that could reduce the amount of fuel and CO2 that currently result from long-distance air travel. So according to this study, using shorter range, uh, shorter range being 2,500 to 3,000 mile or 4,000 to 4,800 kilometer, um, 250 passenger jets a single in-flight refueling during a 6,000-mile long-haul journey could reduce the weight of fuel by 20%. So you use a shorter-range aircraft that can't go the full distance but refuel it in midair, and it can reduce the weight of fuel by 20% versus a two-flight journey over the same distance. It's because the plane hmm. flying a longer distance in a single leg has to carry more fuel as a percentage of its overall weight. Additionally, this calculation takes into account the fuel needed by the tanker. So, so okay, I thought this was a military application purely, but it sounds like now they're experimenting with actually refueling a passenger plane in flight using a smaller plane, Yep, refuel it in the air, and you end up with, well, one thing, you don't have to, to stop to refuel. No layover. Uh, right. So <laughs> the theory, right, you you... So the hub and spoke model that they referred to in the article, they're talking about the um, the, the airport hubs, like uh, like like Southwest has hubs in um, oh, what is it, Phoenix yep. and Denver, yep. and uh, you know, and so on. And so you're typically flying through one of several large cities or major airports that are a hub city to get wherever you're trying to go. I want to go from my Podunk Airport here in Manchester, New Hampshire, to Anywhere else, I've always got to go through a hub because there right. are no direct flights. Yeah, you're going through BWI or, yeah. So in theory, you could refuel in the air and have a more efficient use of fuel. And I don't have to stop. The catch being you've got to add logistics of a tanker going up in the air to refuel you. And and that's where the real logistics come in. So there's a twofold issue here. One is, A, you don't have enough fuel to get where you're going when you take off. So logistically, the tanker operation has to succeed or you're going to have to divert and you know land somewhere else in between. The, the logistics of the tanker itself, so the, the idea is it would be a different refueling model than is used by the, the, Air, the U.S. Air Force and other air forces around the world. Where, you know, generally the tanker flies straight and even and the aircraft being refueled maneuvers to get up to the nozzle and, you know, dock with it and refuel. This would be flipped oh, the, the, around. The plane to be refueled is doing the straight and level. Yep. The plane just cruises at a certain altitude and then the refueling tanker would would have to maneuver to to refuel. 
And that way, the the onus is on the tanker pilot instead of the airline pilot and the 250 passengers that are experiencing the up and down turbulence <laughs> and, you know, pitch yawn roll to get the, the front end of the plane to dock up. It's one thing for a fighter pilot to do it, I guess. Um, so the tanker aircraft would have to be capable of delivering uh, 35,000 pounds or 15,800 and change kilograms of fuel. And it would need to be able to loiter at the refueling point for at least four hours. So it, that's a that's a serious amount of fuel to fly up and, uh. and refuel. So the logistics side of this is there are some pretty big implications on the logistics side. It sounds like a great idea. That won't work. That is never going to happen. Yeah, no. it just seems too hard because now you've got. I mean, think about how many long distance flights there are in the world over the course of a, even a day. Yeah, hundreds. Uh, it got to be hundreds, right? So that's a lot of tankers you'd be moving up in the air. Yeah. to um to to deal with this. The math. Boy, I don't know. The math looks good. Yeah, but making it work, I think, is is, is the it, it's yeah. not feasible. I don't think it's it sounds too hard yeah it's funny you know anything like that if it's too hard it's like i don't have time to make this work i mean who's <laughs> going to want to sit and figure out because the, I, I, okay, the logistics is interesting when you're talking about the airline industry because they are a logistics driven group of people oh yeah everything all the schedules have been highly optimized the seats in the airplane have been highly optimized so that you're overly fat tush that's sitting in the seat and you're overly tall frame with your knees crammed up against the back of the seat in front of you. They've crammed as many of you into a flight as absolutely possible. I mean, how many uh, empty flights do you fly on? Every once in a while, I get on a flight that only has you know, like a third full or a half full or something. That's really it's rare. The, yeah, extreme exception because mm. their profitability relies so heavily on them being full. What do you say, Eric? Have we done a show? I th I'm pretty sure we've done a show at this point. I am pretty sure we've done a show. So I'll tell you what. Thank you all for listening to this week's Citizens of Tech. And as the Riddler said to Two-Face and Batman Forever, don't kill him. If you kill him, he won't learn nothing. If there's something you don't like about the show, hey, don't kill us. Tell us what we did wrong so that we can learn. And if you are listening and like what you hear, let us know that too. Um, leave a review on iTunes, that kind of thing, because hey, real soon, we're going to have an iTunes feed up, I, I promise. Um, and, and so here's the holdup for those of you that follow Packet Pushers. We are right in the midst of converting our whole platform from one site to another. That is very nearly done. And as soon as it is, then I can crank up some new feeds. So there's going to be a new feed going up for citizens of tech you'll be able to search for it on itunes and find it subscribe just to that if that's all you want if you don't want the community feed or the full feed from packet pushers and uh, and so on so that's that's happening um and, and thanks a lot to all of you that have left us notes again i'm ethan banks at ec banks on twitter eric zutfin at zutfin on twitter and uh now all of you go out and start a rumor about peter jackson's the silmarillion <laughs>